a series that we're continuing this fall season called Through the Curtain. Through the Curtain, and I referred to it when we were doing communion, and this is about the subject, yes, of death and the afterlife and all of what that means to us today. Uh, as I've said before, I'm always surprised how little we talk about it and how little we think about it when it is the most successful event in, in the world. Uh, is in terms of, um, I'll use the word success, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, 100%, okay? It's even, even more successful than taxes because you can find a way to avoid your taxes, right? But you can't run from what's coming. And so it's good for people to understand it and to know what it is because we experience this. And all of you in this room have experienced it in one way or another, uh, you've lost loved ones, you've lost friends, you have people, friends, loved ones who are facing those moments and nearing the curtain, so to speak. So what of this? And we've, we've done a number of uh, different things so far. Uh, in part one, we talked about how a person doesn't have to be afraid of dying. Uh, the Bible, the, the verse from Philippians uh, for me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. So the author there seems to have a positive view about dying, and he's actually hopeful about it and even looking forward to it as he's writing from prison and contemplating what is to come. He's not afraid of it at all. Uh, for him, it's to depart and to go and to be with Christ. As if he's saying that he would somehow leave his physical body and go consciously into the presence of Jesus. This is what, what uh, he believed, as the Apostle Paul uh, writing. And then in part two, we talked about the afterlife in general, but also specifically heaven. And remember, we challenged the idea of naturalism, which is the dominant view uh, in our world, in our culture, and even in Quebec, even even uh, with secularism. And yes, the CAQ were elected in eight minutes. <laughs> the polls closed, and eight minutes later, uh, the, the Coalition Avenir du Québec was re-elected, and that's that's a fascinating government uh, because this is a government that has brought in religion in law in terms of secularism, where we say we don't want religion in the public sphere, get it out of here, uh, you, you keep it to yourself, but religion has no uh, broad truth in public life, so you keep your religion in private. That is a religious view that is put into law, right? So, But this is all coming from naturalism, and we challenge this idea of naturalism and said, no, it doesn't explain all of life. Uh, there are things that naturalism falls way short in in terms of trying to explain. Uh, by the way, if you want uh, to, uh, to see what naturalism is in the Bible, in the Bible, there's a whole book that is, I think, 12 chapters long, at least 12 chapters, that is basically the author is saying, this is naturalism. He doesn't use that term, but he's writing as if to say, there really is no God. There really isn't anything new under the sun. Uh, everything is meaningless and so on. You know what book I'm talking about? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Yeah, that is the view of naturalism 
expressed by the author. So you may want to read Ecclesiastes uh, in your spare time. He's looking at basically this is what life is without God. And then last week we talked about hell and uh, in defense of hell actually and talked about the grand scheme of justice and what is God supposed to do about evil. And what is an eternal God supposed to do with evil in a, in, a, in a way that matches his character? And we talked about hell as well, and there's a, that's a, a, probably a message that you want to look at again because there's so much detail in there, and we only covered uh, the surface, but uh, you remember I had massive texts on the screen there that you could look through yourself and do your own digging into the scripture. Remember, you don't get your information about the afterlife from other people. You don't get it from your pastor. You don't get it from a priest. You've got to dig into the scripture and build your own convictions from the scripture, okay? So today I want to talk about even further and answer the question, what happens to the body, to the physical body in the afterlife? You say, what a weird question that is. Who cares? <laughs> you know? Well, uh, let, me, let me tell you why it's important. Um, in, in a lot of religious views out there, the body, the physical body, is actually the problem. So it's the body and its desires. It's the body and its wants. It's the, the flesh and its carnality that leads to problems. This is what leads people into sin. This is what leads people into suffering. It's the body is the problem. In fact, the physical world is the problem. And if we can just escape it, uh, and at death we shed this body, they say, well, now we're free from it. And a lot of religious philosophies and views have that in common. And there's a kind of a negative view of the body. And sometimes even in churches and even in Christian circles, the body is, is viewed that way, as if it's a, some sort of a bad thing. Uh, what does the Bible say, though? In the, beginning, in, the, in the beginning, God created, and it was good. He doesn't say it was bad. Uh, when, you, when you look through the Bible, you actually see there's quite a respect for the body. But even, even in the first century, even in Jesus' day, there was a view that salvation was not attained through the physical world. Physical body was a problem. It's called Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, salvation is achieved through secret knowledge. And uh, so they had a big problem with the idea that God could become flesh in the person of Jesus. And you see this is addressed in the pages of the New Testament. And the writers there are really challenging this idea. They're saying, no, Jesus is God in the flesh, flesh and bones. He had a real, real physical body. Well, then what happens at death? At death, if it's true, uh, and we looked at it uh, when we looked at heaven, the the, the, the person who is a, a follower of Christ, the person whose heart has submitted to God, the person whose posture is not uh, opposed to God but has submitted to God, the person who has come to Christ, that person becomes part of the we, remember? And whenever someone turns to the Lord, they become part of that we, and they're at death, they're absent from the body and at home with the Lord. 
But while they're here, they're at home in the body and away from the Lord. Like you have two homes. One's a temporary home here and one's your eternal home over there, right? But what happens to the body? The body just goes in the ground and that's it or it goes wherever and that's it. Well, no, the scripture actually has something to say about this and something quite profound to say about it. Uh, that I want to show you today. So uh, the, the, the key passages, and I'll put them on the screen. You can, you can look at them uh, uh, later and in detail. There's a lot of moving parts in here, even though they're really short. Uh, Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, sorry, and Paul's letter to the Corinthians there, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'll read for you uh, out of 1 Thessalonians. This is actually a passage that's read at funerals often. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. In some translations, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who sleep in death. So we want you to understand, we want you to know what happens to people who die. And note his use of the word sleep. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral where there was no hope in the room. And the sadness and the, the melancholy uh, was so palpable. It was such a sad moment because there was no hope in the room of any possible afterlife or of any possible reunion with that person. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, I'll unpack this a bit later, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Wow. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on in there. And you probably hear that and you're, you know, you're, what is he talking about? It sounds like science fiction. Uh, well, let me, let me help you. Let me unpack it for you. First thing that he wants you to know is that there is a such thing in death as a hopeful grief. A hopeful grief. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who die, those who sleep in death. Now, Jesus had promised. He said, for God so loved the world uh, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, hold on a second. The people started perishing, right? This is first century, late 50s, the first letter of, the, of Thessalonians was written, and people are dying. People within 20, 30 years of Jesus' life and death and resurrection are dying. So what happens to these people? Uh, they are those who sleep in death, as the writer terms it here, I thought Jesus said that they're never supposed to die. Is that what he meant? We, this is why he's saying, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant. 
nor to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. There can be a hope even in grief. And when you have an assurance, when you have a confidence of something after the grave and something that you can build convictions on and build your life on that's after the grave, well, you'll grieve, but it won't be a hopeless grief. There are people in this room who I've, I've, I've grieved with. I've grieved with you as you've lost loved ones. I've grieved with you as, you, as you've lost uh, loved ones in, in ways that were totally unexpected and total shocks and everything and grieved. But you're, it's not that you're not supposed to grieve. It's that there should be a grief that has hope in it and that has uh, light in it and not just doom and gloom, as he says, like the rest of the world who has no hope, who has no hope. I, I encourage you to go to funerals when you can because you'll know right away whether there's hope in the room or whether there's nothing but hopelessness in the room. And everything changes when people have an assurance and a confidence in something afterward. And you say, yeah, but this, the things that he's talking about are bizarre. They, it sounds like a science fiction movie. I mean, I can't be made to, to believe that this is real. Well, the, the fellow who's writing this is Paul. And Paul is not a daft individual. He's a highly, highly educated uh, first century Pharisee, essentially. He's like the creme de la creme of the religious orthodoxy of the time. He's a debater. He's a superb writer. He's incredibly intelligent. He lays out his arguments very well. He wrote more than half of the New Testament. Read it yourself and you'll see. He argued with people in everywhere from Athens to the synagogues. Um, and he was a debater. And here he is writing, and this is a man whose life was totally, totally flipped. Uh, I'm thinking of that Will Smith song. My life got flipped, turned upside down. Any of you? Okay, some of you know what I'm talking Anyway, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Am I dating myself? Well, Paul's life got flipped, turned upside down, folks. Like, he was an enemy of the church, a persecutor, a religious persecutor of the church. And he's, he's captured, in a sense, by the living Christ in a supernatural way. He has a, he has a vision and experience, and he, he turns his life completely around, and he, he's promoting the faith that he once persecuted. This is a man who had people thrown in prison and even put to death for their faith, and now he's totally changed. And this is what he says it goes by very fast. We don't want you to have no hope. Why? For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Stop. We believe that. This is our foundation for what I'm about to tell you. And remember, you become part of the we when you turn to the Lord. That basic idea you repent and turn to the Lord. We believe that what? Jesus died and Jesus rose again. So this is what he's going to base his whole argument on. Whatever happens afterward is secondary. It's, it's based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Now, this is of critical importance to you. The whole of Christianity is founded on this. If this does not, is not real, if you don't have not only Jesus dying, but Jesus, yes, rising from the dead, then you have no Christianity. You can't just have Jesus dying and have Christianity because you have a dead Savior. You have to have a resurrected Christ in order for Christianity to be real. Even Paul writes this in, in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, look, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, you have no hope. You have no hope in life. You have no hope in death. And more than that, we're all lying to you. We're liars. We're deceivers. And everybody is wasting their time. So he, he hangs his hat on this. He bases his life on this. The first century believers went to their graves believing this. This was the whole crux of the matter. Now, I know we live in this whole naturalistic world, and no, there's no miracles. Come on, you know, get with life. You're trying to deal with, you're trying to cope with life, and so you invent this story of Jesus dying and being raised from the dead to try and help you through death and through all these things in life. It's hocus pocus that none of it ever happened and all of that, and so there is no supernatural. There's none of it. Well, this author is basing his, his life on it. And he's not a daft individual. Here's what you have when you look at Christianity in a broad sense. Because again, the whole thing is based on this. If you're going to be intellectually honest when you read through even just the New Testament, okay? If you're going to be intellectually honest, I'll just put it all on the table for you. You basically have a conundrum on your hands because you have uh, the New Testament which gives you information allegedly about a God who comes into the real world. And the, the thing about the New Testament is that you can verify a lot of the natural stuff. Uh, cultures and uh, politicians and customs and places and people and things. and You can verify this. And nowadays, very few people... Even the, even the, the hardened uh, skeptics who are New Testament scholars, very few people are going to deny that Jesus, A, existed, and B, died on a cross. Very few of them. used to be that people would say that Jesus didn't even exist. Only the radical fringe says that now. Most say Jesus existed and Jesus died. That's halfway there. Okay, the resurrection, of course, they'll say, no, uh, there's no way that Jesus rose from the dead. Dead people don't rise. Uh, and so they'll throw that away. Here's what happens when you do that. You take the New Testament as a whole. What you have is a problem on your hands because you can, you can acknowledge the natural stuff is accurate in the New Testament. Example, Jesus died. But you have to say he did not rise. You have to. You have to say, he didn't do those miracles, he didn't walk on water, he didn't heal the sick, he didn't do any of that, and he certainly, certainly, certainly didn't rise from the dead, therefore all this stuff that you're reading to his pastor is nonsense, it's hocus-pocus, it's mythology, it's whatever. Uh, so you, you have to do something, with, though, with all of this supernatural stuff that's in the New Testament. You with me so far? 
Now, if you want more detail on this, I break this down in our Easter series from last year. You can go online and you can find it. We're on Facebook, YouTube, uh, Spotify, if you want audio. It's all there from Easter, and I go into it at much greater length. But just for now, uh, when you deny all of these things, all of this supernatural stuff, in particular the resurrection of Jesus, you basically only have three choices. And these are the choices. You're going to pick one or all of these. You're going to say that this is an injection into the text. Whoever Jesus was, he was. Sure, he died on the cross, but he certainly uh, did not rise from the dead. And therefore, this has been slipped into this Bible that you're reading. Over you know, 2,000 years of translation, this has been slipped in. And that's why you're reading it today and you, know, you, you believe this stuff, but it's really not true. Well, this is really easy to, to debunk. You don't have any time for anything to be slipped in, in the New Testament. The New Testament's being circulated within the lifetime of the contemporaries of Jesus. I mean, you can rebuild the New Testament without the New Testament. All you need is the preaching of the early church, and you can rebuild the whole thing. From the second and third century even, you can rebuild the whole testament without anything. No manuscripts, no copies, nothing. So there's no time for anything to slip in. This is the way that it was written in the beginning, Take it or leave it, but there's no time for any of this stuff to drop in, you know, by some zealous copyist who's dropping in supernatural stories of Jesus rising from the dead and so on. So you're, you, you, that's not intellectually honest to say that. Number two, you could say, well, he's exaggerating. I mean, he lives in the first century. He's smoking too much magic mushroom, you know, in the back room before he writes his thing there. This is, uh, he's exaggerating. He's not intelligent. He's just, everything is a miracle to him because he's not enlightened. You know, this is pre-enlightenment. Well, have you ever read Paul? Man, this guy is really, really smart. Like, he's got a very, very quick mind, and he seems to know the difference between fantasy and reality, and he seems to challenge this idea of people saying that what he's writing is fantasy. He even addresses it in his own words. So... You've got to take all these things and you've got to say, ah, these writers, you know, they're just simple, simpletons, uneducated people. And no, folks, read them and you'll see. You'll be like, wow, there's, there's a lot of stories I've got to deny and say that they're exaggeration. Number three, you could say it's a downright lie and that he lied about it. Well, if he lied about it, he's a good liar, really good liar, especially because he says he's not lying. And especially because he says, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, I'm the biggest liar of all. Uh, and by the way, I'm being persecuted and executed for my lie. And so are all the other first century believers who go through all kinds of, all kinds of persecution, first century, second century, into the third century, because they believed this. They went to their graves then for what they knew was a lie. These are weak, weak arguments, folks. They don't, they're not rigorous arguments. And what you end up with through the process of elimination is you're like, man, uh, I don't know what to do with this because miracles don't happen. Dead people don't rise. Okay, that's your, is that not your personal bias? Is that not, how, you're, you're saying that Jesus didn't rise. How do you know that? When you can intellectually at least it passes all the tests, even though you've got something supernatural to reckon with. So is it your own bias against the supernatural, or is there any intellectual rigor behind attacking this idea 
that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Well, for Paul, he's going to hang his life on this idea. So for him, this is the foundation. And he says, therefore, because Jesus died and because Jesus rose from the dead, the sleeping, to use his term, are awake. And they actually are coming in verse 14. He says it there. We believe Jesus died, rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Huh? Where are they? When are they coming? Jesus, so Jesus is coming with the people who have, fall, who have died who are believers. Where are they now? Well, um, this was addressed last week, right? Away from the body, absent from the body, and at home with the Lord. The spirit, the soul of the person departs from the physical body at death and goes consciously to be with the Lord. Well, he says the sleeping are actually awake and alive and they are coming. They're going to come and they're going to come with Jesus. Now, if you're reading this or you're hearing this in the first century, that's going to start to give you hope. That's going to start to give you courage because you're going to think about your own loved one. Paul, who's writing this, was there and was overseeing the execution of the first martyr of the church, a guy named Stephen, in Acts chapter 7. And when they had stoned Stephen, uh, they, they took off their outer garments to do this. This was kind of a ceremony when you stone people. And they laid them at the feet of young Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul sometimes. And so, and in the text there, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen dies, the writer says, and he fell asleep. And here's Paul writing about those who fall asleep in Christ, that they will return. I'm sure he was thinking of many people, but maybe specifically Stephen. And he was there overseeing his death as Stephen fell asleep. He's coming. And he's coming with Jesus. So these people are alive, these people are awake, and these people are with Jesus, and they're actually going to come with Jesus. You say this is science fiction, okay, but this is based on what? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is what they hung their hat on. The physical body, he says, actually comes back, rises he says, to meet the soul, verses 15 and 16, we tell you that we who are still alive, so people who are still living, people who are still physically alive, and these people believe that this event would happen in their lifetimes. This is 2,000 years ago this is being written. They saw this as something that could happen even in their lifetimes. It obviously hasn't happened yet, but that's how much anticipation that they had of this. And he says the people who are still alive when this happens will certainly not precede those who have died. According to the Lord's own word, we who are still alive, we're not going to come before those who have already fallen asleep, those who have already died. So something happens to them before it happens to us who are still alive. Do you see it so far? I know it's complicated. I know it sounds like science fiction, but stay with me, okay? For the Lord himself will come down from heaven 
with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. These are symbols in the Old Testament of uh, uh, God's movement, of God's judgment. And the dead in Christ will rise first. There's going to be a physical, he says, resurrection of these people who have died, who have fallen asleep. Their bodies are going to be brought back somehow. You say, uh, how is that possible? And what happens now, especially in Christian circles, is people start thinking about, well, does that mean like I have to be buried and not cremated? No, I'm going to tell you now, uh, that's a common question. It doesn't matter if you're cremated. It doesn't matter if you're buried. You're talking about the supernatural here. Uh, God doesn't need you to assist him if he's going to do something supernatural. You know, I've heard people say, oh, well, no, you can't. A Christian person can't get cremated. If they get cremated, they'll never be resurrected from the dead as if they've somehow tied God's hand behind his back by being cremated. I mean, you're talking about the miraculous here. Uh, God who creates the whole world out of nothing and uh, he needs your help if you're going to be resurrected? I don't think so, right? Uh, so as long as you're not being cremated because you're worshiping some, some pagan uh, god or religious view or something, then go ahead. I mean, if that's what you, what you desire, go ahead. I've done funerals for people who are buried. I've done funerals for people who are cremated. But there will be a, what, a resurrection, Resurrection is not resuscitation, it's not reincarnation, it's a total recreation of the physical body, much like the, the, the change that happened to Jesus when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. In fact, the Bible calls him the first fruits of those who will be raised from the dead. His, he was recognizable, but his body somehow different. He can eat food, but he's like walking through walls. It, this is a different uh, physicality. This, is, this has got the supernatural in it, but it's a tangible, real, physical body. He tells the people, put your hand in my, in, 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 feel the nail scars in my hands. Put your hand in my side where the spirit, I'm, a, I'm not a ghost. I'm a real physical body. And so this is what's going to happen. Yes, to believers, your physical body He's going to come back one day. You say, I just can't believe it, Pastor. Like, it's, it's science fiction. Okay, well, if you'll, give, if you'll give me Jesus raised from the dead, that's what you need to start. Okay? If, if it happened to him, if that physical resurrection of Christ happened, then this is what Paul is basing the whole thing on. This is what the whole faith is based on, the miraculous and the acknowledgement that this thing actually happen. The physical body rises to meet the soul, and the living, those who are still alive when it happens, will be changed. Their bodies are going to change too. And he picks this up, same idea, in his letter to the Corinthians. I tell you that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and the perishable doesn't inherit the imperishable. This is often read at gravesides. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, we will not all physically die, but we will all be changed. The mortal body you have is a body that dies. It's a body that gets sick. It's a body that gets old. Remember, we talked about death in the beginning 
what actually is death? Why does death actually happen? So you have a mortal, physical, dying body. And he says here, it's going to be changed. It's going to be miraculously changed in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. Same image in the other letter. The dead will be raised, imperishable. We will be changed. There will be a change that takes place to the physical body in resurrection. Wow. And now I know that some people in church circles, you're thinking about the rapture because this, this passage is the passage that is commonly used to defend the rapture. I was reading an article in CNN recently about rapture anxiety. Have you ever heard the word rapture before? If it's a foreign word to you, you've never heard the word before, put your hand in the air. All right, okay. Well, in Christian circles, at least in some Christian circles, the idea of rapture is that God will here in this passage remove the believers from the planet. Those who have died in Christ will be raised from the dead. The believers who are left on the planet will be changed, removed. They'll all go up into, into the supernatural heaven together to be with the Lord, and then there will be this period of wrath and of judgment and tribulation, as it's sometimes called on planet earth, for a period of seven years. So rapture is the idea of the taking up of the, the church or the believers worldwide in order for, to be protected from this period of tribulation. And this passage is often used to defend it. In fact, both of these passages that I've used uh, are used to defend it today, but um, it, the article in CNN was talking about the anxiety that people have as a result. It's a bit of a humorous article. You know, people who grow up in churches that believe this, and they're, they're all scared that the rapture happened. They come home, and their parents aren't home, and they say, oh, the rapture happened, and I got left behind, and, you know, they have this anxiety, and they need counseling uh, because they, they have rapture anxiety. Folks, I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little strange coming from a Pentecostal minister. I don't think that this passage, when Paul was writing it, I don't think that his point was to get into a theological debate about a rapture or a non-rapture. There are some people who look at the passage and they don't interpret it as a rapture and they say this is all talking about the same thing. This is the second coming of Jesus and this is what happens and this resurrection and so on. There's no separation between the two events and you know, there different groups will think of it different ways, but I don't think that this is what Paul intended and that he wants people to have theological debates about whether there's a rapture or whether there's not a rapture and so on. I think his point is to encourage people so that people would know what happens when you die. I think his point was to say, as he wraps it up there, he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. It wasn't science fiction to him. It's real to him. It's as real as Jesus dying and being raised from the dead. It was real to him. And he's saying, your loved one is not gone. They are not lost. You won't be lost when you die. There's going to be a reunion together. You're going to be together with that person who has died in Christ, fallen asleep in Christ. 
you're going to be reunited with that person. They're alive, they're awake, and they're coming. And you are going to be with that person or with those people and with the Lord. And it's going to be an eternal thing. It's going to be a forever thing. So that the, the loss that you have now, the grief that you have now, the sense of, of um, uh, you're living life without that person. You're trying to figure it out. You're trying to cope. Year after year, it, it keeps changing, right? And you learn to live differently without that loved one, without that friend, without that neighbor, whoever it is. He's saying that's not, that's not, that's not the end. There's something else. Encourage one another with these words. You're going to see them again face to face, even with the Lord. And that, my friends, is his point. Wherever people want to go in theological debates, fine. But what he's driving after is you've got to know that you can have hope even when you face the grave. Your physical body even is going to come back. Even Job in the Old Testament, he says that though I die and though my flesh decays, and he even says graphically, though worms eat my flesh, Yet in my flesh, I will see God. That's like the oldest book in the Bible, Job. That's way before Jesus was even born. And even him, he had a concept of resurrection. And he understood that to be real. My friends, is it real to you? Maybe the line that you have to cross is, is the whole miracle thing. And the whole acceptance of the supernatural and Jesus rising from the dead as being real. Good. I hope you cross that line. Maybe you're past that line already and hope is dwindling and fading as the years go on and on. And even as you look for your own, your own time to come and hope seems to drop as the years seem to pass. Well, let me tell you, God wants you to have hope. And he wants you to have courage even if you face and when you face the grave. Would you pray with me and any musicians that are here, you guys want to come up and play as we finish up today. Father, we do thank you today. Uh, this Thanksgiving 2022, would you challenge people's hearts? Um, people who are watching online, people who are here in person, would you challenge us? Lord, we live in a world that tells us one thing and here you are telling us another and I pray that you would, um, you would speak to people, you would, um, you would uh, motivate people, you would inspire people to dig and to discover and to search for you. For you have promised you are not far from each one of us, Lord. I pray for the, the person who's in the room or who's online, maybe someone who's listening to a, to a recording of this somewhere. I pray, Lord, you would speak by your spirit to people. Uh, and Lord, you would, you would challenge us to, um, to grow in faith. I pray for those who, they, they're living it, Lord. They have seen their loved ones leave. They have seen them go through the curtain, and they're living through it. Would you encourage people? Would you give hope to people? Would you strengthen people's faith and conviction, Lord, that we would grieve, yes, but not grieve as those with no hope. May our trust in you 
increase in these days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the Lord bless you today and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Hope some of you have a little bit of time off tomorrow. You can enjoy the beautiful weather and the change of seasons. Remember to pick up your kids over in number 11. God bless you today.